0: I had a level of, it wasn't arrogance, but sort of an assumption that I've got this. You know, I've just done business school. I've been a strategy consultant. i would run huge businesses. I knew medicine. I'm just going to smash this. You know, I can be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to be way ahead of everyone else because I've got it because I'm old. And I so didn't. So that was quite humbling, I suppose, along the journey to realise I've definitely made as many mistakes as everyone else, probably even more. That I've learnt is so much of what you do is around chance and reaching out to opportunities and you can't actually control everything.
1: Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Lauren Gresser of DemDX. who talks about an idea she had during medical school. Turned out it was a bigger idea than she first thought. Join me for an interesting and fun exploration of how DemDX is changing the highest leverage part of the healthcare system. The point of first clinical contact and of course we get into the how of their strategy and purpose what they're doing to develop both lauren welcome to the purposeful strategist maybe just as a way to get us going you could share a little bit about your background and also about demdx
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you, Belda, for inviting me onto this amazing podcast. So, DEMDX stands for Demonstrating Diagnostics. Our mission is around helping frontline clinicians improve their initial clinical assessment of patients. So, it's all about expanding the opportunities of workforce so that more patients can be seen more promptly and added into the patient pathway and more specifically non-doctors. So we work with nurse practitioners and paramedics and physiotherapists and helping them do the clinical assessments, relieving some of the frontline GP pressures. And I came to that as I'm a doctor myself, um, having gone through training and realizing just how hard it is to think through the clinical assessment and what might be going on. So My background, going back further, I was initially in business and did an MBA at Harvard, uh, was a business consultant at Boston Consulting Group, and then uh, came into wanting to become a, a doctor. And it was in my training that this came about.
1: One of the things that struck me when you and I spoke before, you made a decision, which I think is a fantastic decision, but also some might at the time have said, somewhere between brave and and foolhardy, not sort of at the beginning of your career, but actually after you'd had some other experiences in the world, to then decide to become a doctor. What led to that?
0: So, um, yes, it is very unusual, a fantastic decision, and definitely foolhardy rather than brave. But My father was a clinician and a scientist, and I'd studied natural sciences and biology at Cambridge. And at that time, I think probably still the case in the UK, you can study whatever you want and then do something completely different. So I ended up really because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. um, But I did know I didn't want to go into research. Uh, I ended up going into sort of business and finance effectively. And one of the key things about me, which makes me maybe a bit restless, is I love learning. I just absolutely adore learning new things and being challenged intellectually and challenged in all kinds of different ways. So when the opportunity came up to do an MBA, I thought, you know, it's a different country, it's a whole different educational system, it's learning different things. So I jumped at the opportunity uh, because they were kind enough to accept me uh, to go to Harvard and then went into consulting And then it was really sort of, as you say, later on in my career, I was running a huge department uh, in an asset management firm with, uh, well, 100 billion uh, of assets under management. And one day I was like, I had finished my learning curve. It was more business as usual, fantastic with day-to-day challenges and wonderful people. But the learning bit had sort of saturated. And a friend was talking about medicine and how she had always regretted not doing medical school, and was talking about graduate courses. And I don't know, the timing was right. (laughs) I was having itchy career feet. And there's a great saying, which I often quote to people, you know, deciding what to do in their A-levels, or in their university, or their first job. I'm a fantastic example saying... You don't need to know. It's okay. Life is a journey and do different things. And most people that I know in their 40s still don't know what they want to do when they grow up, you know. So I'm a walking example of it's okay to navigate life.
1: So separate from this podcast, I'm going to make sure I share that with our youngest daughter who is in the midst of some of that right now.
0: This is relevant to a business as much as uh, people's personal lives, but you realize just how much you think you're planning and you've got a clear structure and a clear path. And we all know when we get to a certain age that actually life is just so much around who you might bump into at a party or, you know, what conversation might spark your interest or something that you read or look at. So my one thing is just always... Go out and do things because you never know what you might be missing or something that might spark your interest. So, but it's okay to change your mind.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, we're going to get into sort of the purpose of DemDX and how you developed it and w- when it got developed in, in a minute. But before we get to that, if I walked into a GP surgery or a walk in clinic or whatever, and someone was using your tool, your product, what would it look like? How would it be either the same or different from any other experience as a patient?
0: As a patient, you shouldn't know any different except that when services, I would like to say, this is our sales angle, Mm -hmm. when a patient walks into an urgent treatment center or a GP surgery or acute illness hubs, they might be seen by a paramedic or a pharmacist, And two things might happen. One is that actually their cases beyond what that particular clinician group necessarily, they have the competencies. This is very important to underline. They have the competencies and training to see them, but they just don't feel that level of comfort. So you might end up waiting to see a GP. So you might end up waiting for longer. And if you are seen by a non doctor, you might also end up waiting, quite rightly, because they might want to just check with a GP or check with a senior what the management might be or ask them to come back. So that's without our platform. What we'd like to say that with our platform, two things happen. The clinician is more confident to see a wide range of different conditions, so patients get seen faster. And because of the use of our platform, they have more confidence, but all of the guidance and the onward Sort of management is laid out by the clinical director of that area. So if I'm a clinician seeing a patient, I have the comfort when I'm using the MDX platform that this has been vetted and signed off and that if someone's got, I don't know, shortness of breath or a headache or a problem with their elbow, that I'm following the right pathways. And it's hard because at the moment, you're just expected to know them. There are some national guidelines, which is used by CKS, uh, which have absolutely critical. And you've got sort of laminated flow charts sometimes on the walls, but there's nothing that covers the sort of breadth of presentations that you might see. And this just speeds up the whole process, it gives the clinician the confidence to see it and also make the right action. And it means that the patient gets onto the right pathway faster. But what also happens is uh, you're at the, the mercy sounds too strong a word, but like anything, you have variations in level of experience or variations in terms of I might be just coming into this patch, so I might not know what the local protocols are. And this smooths out that variation because they've got a baseline to refer to, which means if I'm new to this patch or I haven't seen this many presentations this way, I can follow the same pathways that my peers are following, uh, my colleagues are following, and that have been signed off by the clinical director. So I also, from a patient perspective have more reliability. And it means that, for example, if I've got a lower back pain, the protocols allow me to go straight to see a physiotherapist, I might go and see straight the physiotherapist. Whereas if I'm seen by a clinician who's less familiar with what to rule out or not having the confidence, I might then have to go back to see a GP, which of course then doubles up on the GP's time, and we're not benefiting from having that additional resource. And then they have to refer on. So it allows both a clinical support platform from a clinical perspective, but brings a huge amount of operational benefits to a system.
1: Yeah, I think I get that sort of confidence, speed, reliability, maybe predictability, accuracy, all that leading to efficiency. and
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's huge. Yeah,
1: I know we've sort of been talking about the purpose, but if you had to sum it up, how would you describe the purpose of DEMDX?
0: The purpose is to help solve the workforce crisis in terms of the lack of capacity. So it's about increasing the clinical frontline workforce by allowing a bigger proportion of community to work at the top of their license. Follow that thread and you can say, well, the purpose is to provide more access to healthcare for all, right? We work with frontline clinicians, but the ultimate benefit is our platform can be used in all kinds of geographies. And, you know, as much as we've got a workforce crisis in the UK, but, you know, in other countries, uh, you know, across Asia, uh, Africa, where they also have a workforce crisis, a different sort. but it allows greater access to healthcare for all.
1: Mm-hmm. And how did you come up with that? Was that, you know, something you've developed as the business has been developing it itself, was that something that existed before it even got started or is that something you came up with in the last couple of weeks? Now, how did that come about?
0: <laughs> it's definitely evolved. The sort of kernel of it was really around this challenge of clinical diagnostics. So there are a number of studies, but, you know, up to a third, probably near 15 20% of initial clinical assessments by any clinician, including GPs, is wrong. It's wrong because it's hard. (laughs) It's wrong because I have to remember all the right questions. I have to think about all of the right examinations. You know, it's hard, you know, when you've got 40,000 different possible diagnoses and God knows how many different pathways, keeping all that in your brain, is just hard. So the source of DemZX was recognizing, irrespective of who might use this platform, that that first clinical assessment is twofold. Probably the most important point for a patient journey, because if you get it right, you could save someone's life. And if you get it wrong, there could be some dire consequences, you know, delay to treatment, delay to whatever. So it's a really key point in a patient's experience, health experience, that first contact with the clinical healthcare system, that first exchange, you know, there's a huge burden on the clinician, as I said, to ask the right questions, And there's nothing really out there that helps them. I'll come on to what is out there. And that was what really drove me initially is how can we help make that initial clinical assessment, you know, safer, more comprehensive, more consistent and faster. And so that's kind of the essence of it. And then we realized that as we were developing that platform It works as a training tool. So, you know, as I'm training to be a clinician, be a nurse, practitioner, paramedic, pharmacist or a doctor, having something to help think about what's my structured assessment, what questions should I ask, what tests should I be considering is helpful. So it works training. But then over time, we were being pulled more into the clinical setting where clinical services, primary care networks, urgent treatment centres were saying, and guys in St. Thomas's were saying we realize there's just there's too much patient demand. We don't have enough frontline staff in terms of GPs and others. And so we are recruiting, it's part of the NHS long-term strategy, we are recruiting these additional role reimbursement scheme positions, which are pharmacists or paramedics and nurse practitioners to come into the clinical setting, to come into primary care. A lot of them are prescribers or advanced nurse practitioners, but they still just don't have the confidence. And so this tool fits perfectly had in glove with the NHS strategy of kind of giving them the freedom to work at the top of their license and the confidence to do so and when you speak to people about well what's their alternative or what were they doing before what do they do without MDX? there are obviously alternatives but the way others have solved it is either by um, you know asking a colleague or asking a GP and that is that point around delaying patients, Uh, looking at CKS guidelines, which, you know, they should of course do, but that's kind of, they're still referring to another resource that's not aimed at them accessing necessarily in the clinical setting. It's still kind of time consuming there with the patient. They're sort of looking up, well, let me just check on what the guidelines are on headache. Our platforms are based on nice CKS guidelines. So it's all embedded with evidence-based pathways. And we've got the additional actions, the local actions And then others have solved this problem by getting these very clear templates, pro forma templates. So someone's come with a sore throat, ask A, B, C, and their tick box exercises. So that's also a way of saying, right, okay, this is what you need to do, but they're unbelievably prescriptive. So it doesn't allow the clinician to apply their own knowledge, you know, and saying, actually, I'm confident about this. The way we've solved or addressed this problem is giving them the pathways that's very intuitive, very easy to access, but giving them the freedom to navigate it. They're the driver, as opposed to you have to fill out this form and say yes, no, yes, no, which is also time consuming.
1: It sounds like you had this idea, or at least the germ of this idea, and then started working on it somehow I don't know whether you formed a company at that point or or not but started working on it It sound like other people then got involved and the idea sort of developed
0: so yeah as a medic myself as a clinician myself recognizing how hard it is to do the best quality structured interview and there's huge amounts of emphasis on the training on that you know there's a structure you have to ask about the history and the examination and past medical history and it's kind of drilled into you over and over and over again so, you know and it's it becomes quite intuitive but it doesn't stop you constantly worrying have i missed something as i said initially my idea was to help improve the training and to make that structured assessment to be applicable to all kinds of different presentations so there's a reference guide And so it started by me talking to a few uh, consultants saying, you know, what do you think is a training tool? And they loved it. And I was sort of almost taken aback because one always assumes, you know, a good idea. Someone else surely has done it. Someone's done this because it's so much needed, surely, right? And then I've discovered why nobody else has done it. They probably don't remember me, but having that initial validation from people within the industry to say this is good and there's nothing I've seen like it and this makes sense to me as a teacher as a consultant in my field I like this idea Um, and so it really did initially evolve as a training tool and there's a real ethos in medicine I mean I speak for medicine because it's the industry I know but I think it's a wonderful ethos where teaching and sharing of knowledge is huge so consultants love to be able to share their knowledge and their work experience there's something about training your colleagues and supporting your colleagues and being able to share share your mistakes and your approaches it's really key so there was a lot of enthusiasm to support that there were two things quite candidly one is someone said to go into medical training is to go to the most risk-averse or conservative industries you've got education and health combined It was slow from a, from a commercial perspective pushing on that door, but we got far more pull and demand, as I said, from the clinical side. So that was our pivot to say, actually, it would be so much better to get closer to the patient. So training is critical, but actually, if you could change a patient's journey and a patient's experience, that's all the better and much better for the system. So, you know, that's where we started to work is actually supporting this wider workforce at the front line.
1: And we may have begun to touch on it already, but what would you say your strategy is then? You've only got a certain limited set of resources. That's true of everybody, but I think even truer of a startup. How do you decide, you know, who you go after, who you talk to, when a product's good enough to go versus, oh, we ought to make it even better? How are you thinking about all those choices?
0: Well, that definitely evolves as the company matures. So your answers to that, you know, at the very, very beginning is very much opportunistic, frankly. So you need an element of a product and an MVP. And from a healthcare perspective, you try and get a pilot going and some evidence going. It's quite hard to get revenue quite quickly. I mean, so the strategy at the beginning, I think, was trialing to fail, but fail fast. And we think we failed, but we probably didn't fail as fast as we should have done. But, you know, we tried a B2C model to say this is great for any clinicians. We tried a B2B model and we've tried all kinds of other things. But now I would say I still consider ourselves a startup, but certainly a more mature and structured company where we've got a clear sort of three to five year strategy plan. We know our target markets. We know our route to market. We know our product roadmap is clear and our ambitions are clear of where we want to be in sort of three to five years time. And obviously the industry is evolving very, very quickly as well, which is sort of interesting and challenging at the same time.
1: Yes. How did you come up with that three to five year thing? Was it you and a couple of senior people in the business getting together for a weekend? Did you bring in some outside consultants? How did you go about
0: that? So, um, and we're still in that process, actually, we've now got to the stage where we've got some good funding, we've got a good product, and we're starting to get some good commercial traction. So it's the right time to be able to pause. The reason I emphasize that is on paper, it's always great to say you need a strategy, you need a three-year plan, you know, what gets measures gets done, you know, I've got the consulting, the business consulting background, the training to appreciate the value. But it's scrappy when you're a startup. And I used to get frustrated when people would say, well, where's your plan? I'm like, I'm just trying to survive the next sort of three months. I'm just trying to get funding to get to the next pilot, to get the next evidence. Like, I can't waste my time over a three to five year plan because I don't know if in three months we're still going. I mean, with hindsight, they were probably right and I was probably wrong. I might have got somewhere faster had i actually had (laughs) a three i don't know i still ponder that myself but anyway i think
1: it's great that you're open to the idea that you might have been wrong but equally i think it's very difficult when there's so much you don't know Where's this really going to fit in the market? What will people actually pay? You know, it's all, who, who's going to buy? Who do we need to talk to for somebody to buy this? All that stuff.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, the product wasn't quite ready. And so how do we know what the real commercial appetite will be when we know the product isn't quite right? Well, we need the funding to get the product quite right. And then it's like, well, we'll pay for it, but where's the evidence? And you're constantly chasing your. But to answer your question, we're a small team. There's 10 of us, some are part time. We've got an amazing non ED board. The non exec directors and the chair are amazing and involved and engaged with us. And so we did a combination of internal strategizing discussions with everyone, actually, because we're a small team. So everyone brings something to the party in terms of, you know, we need to have the dev team, we need to have product, we need to have commercials. So we had a couple of sessions as a team and then presented. And we're still in that process. What we're doing is then presenting to different board members because different board members have different levels of expertise so strategizing and kicking the tires with them to formalize them, then it gets formally sort of signed off at the board process. But it's definitely an iterative process, basically everybody, as well as then the board. But the board have been very engaged.
1: And as you've sort of been going down that road, as you've been on that journey, what surprised you most, particularly around clarifying the purpose of developing the strategy?
0: The clarity of purpose, the direction, the, I think, The efficiency of the team, the buying of the team, because once you've got a strategy and you've got also a structure in terms of, you know, even shorter term targets, all I can say is I've lived it as opposed to I've just read it in a textbook. But, you know, you do see that people get galvanized around a target as a group. And also, I don't know, I'm going to use the excuse I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm always super ambitious and I'm almost super optimistic. And we can do this and we can do that and we can do the other as well. It'd be great. It's forced me to slow down. It's having external people go, that's not realistic and we will fail if we do A, B and C and we have to do it sequentially and not in parallel. Having that pushback and that conversation has made it, you know, a far more robust and higher quality plan.
1: Mm hmm. And what's been the most difficult bit?
0: Not going fast enough, not having it two years ago, uh, sticking to it, all of it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But the actual process of generating it wasn't difficult. I mean, I can imagine that in other situations you might have, you know, disagreements or tensions around developing a strategy. But interestingly, we haven't had that. From that perspective, we've been quite lucky.
1: Mm -hmm. And have you changed? Have you... Grown or developed? What have you learned along the way?
0: <laughs> well, I've aged. <laughs> <laughs>
1: As do we all.
0: <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I don't know to what extent it's been linked to my experience or just life experience versus an entrepreneur startup. So it's quite hard for me to cut through which, but definitely I had a level of, it wasn't arrogance, but sort of an assumption that I've got this. You know, I've just done business call. Cool. I've been a Strategy consultant. I'd run huge businesses. I knew medicine. I'm just going to smash this. You know, I can be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to be way ahead of everyone else because I've got it because I'm old. And I so didn't. So that was quite humbling, I suppose, along the journey to realize I've definitely made as many mistakes as everyone else, probably even more. That I've learned is so much of what you do is around chance and reaching out to opportunities and you can't actually control everything so I've learned that I've learned that contacts are really important being out there definitely failing fast is an important one one thing that I haven't resolved and I think is interesting so as yet unanswered Very early on, there was a book that came out at the time. I think it says Don't Ask Your Mother or something. It's the wrong title, so apologies. But the principle is if you're going to start a business, the last person you should ask what they think is your mother because your mother's always going to tell you it's great. So the advice is when you're going to start a business or got an idea, always test it with genuine users. You know, the people who will tell you not just yes, it's great, but really the real answers. And I probably didn't do that early on. But the question I still have, and actually, I think Bill Gates made the same point. I'm not comparing Demdx to Microsoft or to Apple. But the principle is if you've got something completely new, it's very hard for users to really give you a genuine opinion. Because they can tell you, you know, which pizzas they prefer, you know, which is a better something or other or some new feature. But when you're trying to transform something it's really hard. I mean, now we're all over users the whole time, you know, we're testing everything with users, because we now have something that's sufficiently clear as a vision and as a product and how it fits into the workflow, that users can understand it and therefore give really tangible, high quality feedback. But while you're building and creating something, it's really hard. So that's, you know, something I've learned, which is this tension about bringing users and bringing users at the right time. And it's, Yeah, it's hard to know when the right time is, but it's absolutely critical.
1: Yeah, maybe related to what we're just talking about, but if you were to give advice to a leader of another organization who is grappling with the questions of what's our purpose? How do we come up with a strategy that's going to deliver it?
0: What advice would you give? The one key thing is having a team, an executive team around you that bring more to the table than you do. So have people around who are experts in their field. So you've got a really good set of complementary skills. And that's both the executive team and I think the board and do it together. I think it's really important to do it together. Yeah. So
1: when you say together, is that involve the non-execs with the execs or just make sure you get your whole exec team kind of together in the discussion
0: yeah get the whole exec team together in the discussion and then validate it with the non-execs i mean i suppose it it depends on what the co structure is and how engaged their board is Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i'm all for just constantly iterating and don't assume that you know the strategy don't assume that you've got it nailed because actually sometimes i've gone in it's not even just strategy kind of do it so i think right in my eyes this is now perfect and i'm going to show it to everyone but they won't really change it. There won't be much additions, you know, because it's perfect. And then suddenly after, a you know, an hour or two hour meeting, we've got something that's like 10x better. And it's just the best feeling because you're like, OK, now, now it's really good. That has always surprised me. And it's the same for strategy. Coming back to kind of our own experience and what's worked, seeing how everyone's galvanized because they've been on the journey and they have a sense of agency in the process. It's huge. It's huge, you know, but they also bring something to the table.
1: What haven't we talked about that We ought to touch on. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had?
0: This is very personal, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think people dwell enough on how hard it is. I think you hear a lot about the successes, uh, which is great, and that motivates people. But one of the talks I heard that has struck me the most is someone who had failed and just their journey of failure in a way. It was a really interesting talk and just very moving and just, you know, because it was a very personal journey as well. I mean, I think the Americans are much better at saying, oh yeah, I did this and I failed and I did that and I failed. And I don't think in our UK culture it's quite there yet to say, you know, it doesn't reflect badly on you as an individual or your abilities just because a company has not worked out. There's so much externalities around what success means that you're just not in control of everything. And that can be quite liberating. Sounds like what we say to our kids right back say, All you could do is your best. All you could do is work hard. And it's true. (laughs) There's so much out there that you can't control. So anyway, that's been a mantra of mine throughout the journey. And so I suppose that's good to mention.
1: That sounds to me like that kind of resonates or connects back to what you're saying before about this isn't quite the word you use, but how big a role chance plays. The people you meet, the things you know, the stuff that happens or doesn't happen. Generally, there's a pattern that people just underestimate for good or bad, for good or bad. You know, sometimes when you, when you fail, it's you did the best you could, just the cards were stacked. It didn't turn out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I spoke to one person who had this great business and they were just too early. They were just too early from a tech perspective and the healthcare sector was just not mature enough to accept. And of course now, you know, he's very frustrated because, you know, there are a lot of very successful companies and he had it 15 years ago. He had the vision, but the timing was wrong. Definitely, Demdx have been very, very lucky in terms of the team that we've recruited along the way and our partners have been fantastic, you know, when you're a startup in healthcare, you need partners within the NHS or outside that are prepared to take risks and invest time and resource in trialing something. And you know that's hard, particularly in healthcare where you've got a super stretched resource already. Where you know we work very closely with clinicians, and it's really hard. So to then say, well, let's change what you're doing now, or is your stretch? Can we change it? It's, it's amazing to have partners like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things, just as a comment about what you're trying to do there that I think is fantastic, is obviously there's been an ocean written about the NHS and how it should change to be better and all of that. What I really love about what you're doing is you're not saying, oh, I've got this new model of how it all work. You're just saying there's a particular place where we don't have enough resource and there are people who could do more And we're helping them do more. And that's got to be a good thing. If you don't mind my saying, so I just think that's fantastic.
0: It's very nice to hear. We just need to get it out there so it can have impact. (laughs) But yes, I agree. Thank you.
1: Maybe this can be one, one small little additional (laughs) way you can get the word out there.
0: Absolutely. Lauren,
1: thank you so much for joining. It's been, for me, there's been really both educational and inspiring, but also good fun just having a chat about it. So thank you.
0: Likewise. And thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been great fun.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. We're going to be taking a break for the summer, so join us again in September. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. See you after the summer.